and welcome to Discovery, the National Science Show. I'm Gina Sartori. We've got a mini theme running in this edition, evolution. I'll be reviewing a review of a spat of a geological scale between evolutionary biologists and Chris Stewart will be investigating both the prizes and the booby prizes of the gene pool. First up though, here's Ian Wolfe with the news. On Sunday, October 28th, people around Australia will be staying in bed in an effort to find a cure for chronic fatigue syndrome. Money will be raised from sponsored resters to fund research into chronic fatigue syndrome. This is an illness that leaves sufferers exhausted by small efforts with immune problems, digestive problems, severe pain and sleep disorders. There's no known cure and sufferers face a lack of understanding from conservative health practitioners and the wider community. Nigel Hart, President of the New South Wales Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Society, invites everyone to come to bed with us and do nothing for charity on Sunday, 28th of October. The Society can be contacted on 02-9662-3488 for registration as a Restathon participant or for information about support for people with CFS. They're also on email at mesoc at zip.com.au. Contact them and they can tell you about lack of activity to raise money in your state. Previously on Discovery, we had news of Choo Choo, the robot that ran on sugar cubes, digested to produce electricity. One sugar cube provided enough electricity for 15 minutes of movement. Now, Ian Kelly of the University of the West of England is taking robots to their next logical step, the slug-powered robot. Moving robots catch and collect slugs, then deliver them to the stationary recharging station for fermentation in a microbial fuel cell to electricity, and then get themselves recharged. Slugs were chosen because they're a major pest, reasonably plentiful, have no hard shell or skeleton, and they're reasonably large and slow. It's also just more interesting for robots to catch mobile prey rather than just grazing on plants. Slugs are mainly active at night, especially just after sunset and just before sunrise, so the robots will have to be active at these times and be resting to conserve energy during the day when most slugs are underground. A digital camera eliminates stones by the identification of bright patches under red light with the correct size and shape for slugs. Then the long arm grabs the slug. Currently, the prototype can move, scan, detect and almost collect slugs while ignoring stones in a laboratory under conditions similar to those found in real agricultural fields. Movies of the Slugbot in action can be found on the website at www.ias.uwe.ac.uk. Physicists are hoping to create teeny tiny little black holes. Black holes are known as voracious eaters of stars and anything else that gets in their way. Near event horizons, where space is fantastically warped, black holes can spawn particle-antiparticle pairs out of sheer vacuum. In some cases, one of the pair escapes beyond the horizon while its partner is pulled into the black hole. Thus, black holes can bleed energy in the form of this Hawking radiation. Physicists hope to bring this whole process down to Earth by manufacturing tiny black holes amid the stupendous smash-ups of protons at the Large Hadron Collider being built at CERN in Switzerland. Until recently, theorists thought gravity was so weak compared to the other forces that it could only be studied close up at unreachably high energies. Savas Dimopoulos of Stanford and Greg Landsberg of Brown University use a model that uses higher spatial dimensions to allow researchers to make extremely small black holes at practical energy levels. 
black hole produced in this way would very quickly decay in a furious burst of Hawking radiation. The properties of this Hawking radiation could tell physicists about the shape of any extraspatial dimensions that the fabric reality may have. It's a good thing that they're very short-lived, because if, one of, if in one of those oops moments they fed it and dropped it, you can just imagine it falling to the centre of the Earth and starting to chew and grow. You're listening to Discovery. Chris Stewart has spent the last week investigating awards and prizes he has no chance of winning. October. October is a big month for science. It's a time for important tuxedo-wearing propeller heads to gather in Sweden to announce this year's Nobel Prizes for medicine, physics, chemistry, literature, peace and economics. But while the Nobel Prizes are being decided in Sweden, an equally important event on the science calendar took place on October the 4th when important tuxedo-wearing propeller heads gathered in Cambridge to hand out the 2001 Ig Nobel Awards. Tonight, the story of these two great institutions of honour and glory. Plus, as a special treat, with the virtual ink still drying on the press releases at the Nobel Foundation website, a quick look at the winners of the first two Nobel Prizes for 2001. The Nobel Prizes are something like the Intellectual World's Academy Awards. The winners are often seen coming from a mile away. They're usually quite well known and very well funded. And there's always a big party afterwards where some debate over expensive drinks goes on about who really should have won. There's a wonderful historical irony surrounding the Nobel Prizes. The award's founder, Alfred Nobel, was a rich, influential type in the mid to late 18th century. Sorry, 19th century. He was the inventor of dynamite, and as you can imagine, that made him a lot of friends and a lot of cash very quickly. He became wildly successful as a scientist and inventor, with laboratories in over 20 countries and more than 350 patents to his name. But Nobel was a man of the arts as well as the sciences. In his will, after doling out the requisite cash to relatives and friends, he declared, The whole of my remaining realisable estate shall be dealt with in the following way. The capital shall constitute a fund the interest on which shall be annually distributed in the form of prizes to those who, during the preceding year, shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. The said interest shall be divided into five equal parts. And so, in 1901, the Nobel Prizes for Physics, Chemistry, Medicine, Literature and Peace were born. Years later, during that chemically enhanced, mind-expanding decade of love known as the 60s, in a move to reflect the vibe of that age, the awards were augmented to include a further category, economics. The Nobel Prizes are awarded each year on December the 10th, the anniversary of Nobel's death in 1896. And what a night it is. We're talking Swedish royalty, sumptuous banquets, the who's who of intellectual elite sipping fine champagne with rich toffs in black tie and tails. If you want to check it out in all its fascinating and slightly embarrassing opulence, I urge you to visit the Nobel website, www.nobel.se. Now, it can't be an easy job being a Nobel Selection Committee member. How would you choose the individual who has contributed the most to human progress in a given field in a given year? All right, so the Nobel rules state that up to three people may be chosen in each category, but still, across all of physics or literature or economics, narrow it down to three a year? Which is one reason why there is often a significant lag between a great achievement and a subsequent, subsequent recognition with a Nobel Prize. For example, this year's prize for medicine, just recently announced on the 8th of October, 
was awarded jointly to Leyland Hartwell from the USA and Tim Hunt and Paul Nurse from Great Britain for their pioneering work on the process of cell division, research they did mostly back in the 1970s. It's also why occasional oddities pop up in the Nobel Awards over the years. Everyone's favourite crazy head physicist, Albert Einstein, is best known for his theory of relativity, one of the very cornerstones of 20th century physics that make possible the vast majority of modern technology. Einstein did win the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921, but not for relativity. Since then, no one has ever received an award for relativity physics, despite its huge importance as a theory, possibly just because it would be too embarrassing for poor old Al. Well, I'm tired and so weary. On Monday, October the 8th, the first of the Nobel Prizes for 2001 was announced. The Prize for Medicine was awarded jointly, as I said before, to Leyland Hartwell from the USA and Tim Hunt and Paul Nurse from Great Britain. They carried out research in the 1970s and 80s on the processes involved in cell division. Their work identified the roles of specific genes and proteins in the finely tuned choreography of the cycle of cell growth, chromosome duplication and cell division that takes us from a single fertilized egg to the hulking structures of billions of cells that we are. And I'd like to report in a rare journalistic first, I'm able to announce the 2001 Nobel Laureates for Physics, announced at 7.45 this Tuesday, October the 9th. The prize was announced by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. They've decided to award the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2001 jointly to Eric Cornell and Carl Wehman from Colorado in Boulder and Wolfgang Ketterl from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. What did they do? Well, they introduced the world a couple of years ago, back in 1995, to a brand new type of matter, a new state of matter called the Bose-Einstein condensate. They successfully created this new state of matter in the laboratory. The Bose-Einstein condensate is a situation where many atoms are cooled to an incredibly low temperature and all of them fall into the exact same quantum state. That means that all of the atoms tend to behave in exactly the same way as the scientists themselves say, they all sing in unison. Oh, yes. But leaving Stockholm, we'd step just across the North Sea to Cambridge, England, where the Ig Nobel Awards were handed out last week. Now, if winning a Nobel Prize is something like receiving an Oscar, then an ignoble award must be compared to the famed Golden Raspberries for the worst cin cinematic events of the year. The IGs, as they're fondly known, have been awarded annually since 1991 by the editors of that great academic journal, The Annals of Improbable Science. According to the Ignobles website, www.improb.com slash IG, the awards honour achievements that, quote, cannot or should not be reproduced. Ten prizes are given each year to people who have done remarkably goofy things. Some of them admirable, some, some of them not so much. The Ig Nobel Awards are presented at a gala dinner as well. And while royalty is not typically present, you could do a lot worse than attend the ceremony in one of the great halls at Cambridge University. Most of the winners are gracious in victory and swallow their pride to turn up to receive their honours, presented somewhat cruelly by past Nobel Prize winners. So, finally in this report, a selection of the 2001 Ig Nobel Awards winners. And remember, none of this is made up. This is all real. The Ig Nobel Award for Medicine goes to Peter Bass of McGill University in Canada, 
for his impactful medical report, Injuries Due to Falling Coconuts. For biology, Buck Weimer of Pueblo, Colorado, for inventing under-ease airtight underwear with a replaceable charcoal filter that removes bad-smelling gases before they escape. For literature, John, Rich John Richards of Boston, England, founder of the Apostrophe Protection Society, for his efforts to promote, protect and defend the differences between plural and possessive. That's one of my favourites. For astrophysics, Dr. Jack and Rixella Van Imp of Jack Van Imp Ministries, Rochester Hills, Michigan, for the discoveries that black holes fulfil all the technical requirements to be the location of hell. For peace, Viliumas Manlinaukas of Grutas, Lithuania, for creating the amusement park known as Stalin World. The award for public health goes to Chittaranjan and Andradre and B.S. Srihari of the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences in Bangalore, India, for their probing medical discovery that, astoundingly, nose-picking is a common activity amongst adolescents. And finally, something that all Australians can be proud of. The Ig Nobel Award in 2001 for Technology was jointly awarded to John Keogh of Hawthorne, Victoria for patenting the wheel in the year 2001 and also to the Australian Patent Office for granting him the innovation patent number 2001-100012. Yep, you can look it up. Light as a splash, as a sea, oh yes. There will be peace in the valley for me. That was Chris Stewart, who would settle happily for an Ig Nobel Award sometime in the future. And go apostrophe man! Yay! You're listening to Discovery, the National Science Show. Coming up, fear and loathing amongst the biologists. Hello, I'm Max Planck, and I'm a famous physicist. You might know me from such famous scientific discoveries as the black body radiation formula. If there's one thing that's constant in my life, it's Discovery, the National Science Show. Okay. Very good. Thanks, Max. Can I go now? Sure can. Okay. When one of our team members came into the newsroom waving some books we'd been sent to review, and I saw that one of them contained the names Dawkins and Gould in the title, I'm afraid I jumped up and down shouting, Ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me, and elbowed the other discovery types aside. <coughs> Most unseemly. This is because Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould are the big names in evolutionary biology. Now, I'm no evolutionary biologist, or any other kind of biologist for that matter, but I do have something of a taste for scientific controversy, and Gould and Dawkins are pretty big names in the controversy field as well. This is mostly to do with holding widely differing views about the nature and implications of evolution, but also because they are each major contributors to the communication of science. And that's the other reason I put in a, shall we say, assertive bid for the book. Love their work, found it inspiring as an undergraduate and still do. Read any of their books, you'll love them. You might not agree with them, but you'll be entertained. But onto the review I'm supposed to be giving. Kim Sterilney, a professor of philosophy, has written Dawkins vs. Gould, Survival of the Fittest to tease out both the scientific and the philosophical and social strands of a debate which shows no sign of diminishing in vigour. The worst pun is in the title little Darwinian gag there so once you're past it you're fairly safe from ponderous humour in fact the style is a rather nice bit of careful and scholarly analysis 
complete with appropriate references to other major scientists and a reading list, combined with the odd joke and personal comment thrown in. The jokes are, well, let's face it, mild. For example, illustrating the dangers of feral animals. I'll add a quote. The Stevens Island wren lived only on, surprise, Stevens Island in New Zealand and is now extinct as a result of wren-cat interactions. Or to help explain why showing that two things are correlated doesn't mean that one causes the other, the flight of migrating waders to Siberian greeting grounds correlates with the start of the Australasian rugby season. But that flight does not cause rugby to begin. Refreshingly, as far as I can tell, all the professor's personal comments are actually flagged, so you know they're personal. Though I guess you'd have to ask the protagonists what they think of the presentation of their views to be really sure. Sterilney opens with what I suppose you could call the cartoon version of the opposing views. Richard Dawkins, the hard-edged reductionist, espousing the view that the history of life is a history of a mostly invisible war between individual gene lineages, not even whole organisms, just isolated genes, with a fair bit of social Darwinism thrown in for good measure. Stephen Jay Gould, the paleontologist, taking the very un-Darwinian view that survival depends more on luck than on fitness, and that natural selection, where it acts at all, acts just as much on whole species as on individuals. That's the cartoon version. If you want to find out the real state of play, and there's a lot more common ground than you might think from that opening, you'll have to read the book. You'll learn a lot about modern evolutionary theory along the way, and both sides agree that it's a great deal subtler than the Darwinian phrase, survival of the fittest. The fittest what, for a start? Fittest gene? Gene complex? Organism? Group of organisms in a particular habitat at a particular time? Species? Or maybe the fittest phylum? Sterilney gives a fairly detailed and not too technical account of the major issues, and what I really love, gives a few chapters of summary at the end, setting out the position of each combatant on each one. This is not a book that relies on false dichotomy. Actually, I was surprised at how closely the two positions could be interleaved, to the point of much of the controversy disappearing on many of the main issues. It's really more a question of interpretation. As well as looking at the scientific differences between the two men, Sterilney considers how their attitudes to science have fueled the debate. Dawkins, the atheist, believes that, while not without flaws, science is the best problem-solving mechanism we have come up with and that there's no domain to which the scientific method cannot or should not be applied. Gould, on the other hand, sees science as just one of many ways of answering questions about the world. Which view is correct? Which is more admirable? Why does Gould go to so much trouble to explain science if it's so flawed? Well, the answer to that one can be found in his mismeasure of man and explain why he f thinks it's so important. Sterilney raises in perhaps not quite enough space what is a whole debate in itself. For example, the role of God and science in morality. Is torturing babies bad because God said so? Or did God say so because it's bad? In the first case, you lay yourself open to, some, to calling some fairly dodgy behaviour right just because God commands it. But in the second case, God is irrelevant. Nice to see the questions raised, no matter how glancingly. 
Once again, it's pointed out that neither Dawkins nor Gould takes a cartoon position. Dawkins admits that the scientific process can be influenced by social factors. Gould, on the other hand, rejects the more extreme forms of postmodern relativism. Again, you're not left to guess the author's own view, which helps in the filtering process. In the interests of fairness, I should point out that I'm with Dawkins and Sterling on this issue, though with Gould on many others. I found that some parts were a little bit clunky. It was hard sometimes to see how one paragraph followed from the previous one, but they may well have been because the subject material was unfamiliar to me. I'd need to read it again to be sure, and that's something that I'd happily do, which is not always the case with scholarly texts. Something about the book, I'm not sure if it's the style or the design or even the length, only 137 not too large or dense pages long, but something about it says expanded academic paper to me. This is not meant to be a slur on the work, more a guess about the intended audience. Professor Sterling is actually admirably lucid, and while jargon is not always avoided, it is always explained. But I think you'd get the most out of this book if you already had some interest in evolution, or an interest in knock em down, drag em out scientific brawling. If you don't have such an interest, read Dawkins or Gould and you'll soon get one. Sterling's work is a most welcoming haven from which to contemplate the rough and tumble. And Dawkins vs Gould, Survival of the Fittest, is published by Icon, an imprint of Allen and Unwin, and the recommended re- retail price is $16.95. A bargain. Two, one, two, three, four.
And finally, here's Chris with a late-breaking piece of girly news. Girly news? <laughs> Not sure where that's come from. Oh, dear. The US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, recently approved a contraceptive ring that can be kept inside the vagina for three weeks and then removed for one week to allow a normal menstrual period. It's claimed to be as effective but safer than oral contraceptive pills. The flexible polymer ring consists of a flexible, we said that, transparent ring about five centimetres in diameter, containing the hormones, flexible polymer, there's flexible polymer rings all over the place here, which releases a continuous low dose of a com combination of estrogen and progestin hormones into the vaginal mucus. As a result, this ring, unlike previous progestin-only vaginal rings, this is a really hard read. I'm keeping going here. Will not cause abdom <laughs> abnormal bleeding. You, oh, get through it. A new ring is used each month for continuous contraception. Studies show it to be 99% effective. The point of using the ring is that it releases much lower doses of hormones than the contraceptive pill and on a continuous basis so that women can expect to suffer less side effects. However, like all hormone-based contraception, there is an increased risk of blood clots, heart attacks and stroke in susceptible people. That doesn't sound too hot. And it won't protect you against sexually transmitted disease. And that's progesterone, you physicist. Sorry? I didn't write it. Talk to Ian. Tell me that wasn't girly news. The bloke couldn't even read it. <laughs> okay. That's enough carping from me. That's just about all we've got time for on this edition of Discovery. If you'd like any more information on anything you heard, you love us, you hate us, or you just want a bit of a chat, why not email us on Discovery Radio, one word, discoveryradio at zip.com.au. On this edition of Discovery, you heard Chris Stewart and Ian Wolfe. Lachlan Watmore hit the buttons with only minor loss of temper, recalcitrant tape players notwithstanding. Discovery was produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney by Lachlan Watmore and broadcast nationally on Comradesat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Gina Sartori. Join us for more science next week. <laughs>
Voilà, 